You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. I come to you, preach to you on the, this morning on the subject of, but the church prayed. But the church prayed. In the early 90s, there was a pastor in the city of Cali, Colombia, named Pastor Julio Cesar Rubio. He had moved to Cali with his wife Ruth years before, and they were struck at the state of the city they found. Cali, Colombia was the epicenter of the cocaine industry. Over 70% of cocaine exports flowed through the city of Cali, so therefore it was a battleground between drug lords and their cartels. And corruption ran in every single channel of the city. The police department had cartel-linked officers all through it. The, The government, the courts, everyone was bought or threatened by the cartel. Violence ran the streets. Upwards of 15 homicides a day were expected in the city. Pastor Julio was discouraged also by the state of the churches in the city and found them to be lacking in prayer, lacking in unity, lacking in holiness or belief that God could do something. He began to meet with the other pastors and form a pastor's fellowship, and they just began to look internally at their own churches and pray for the state of their churches. They prayed for revival within their churches. They prayed for greater collaboration between churches to face the immense challenges they were seeing in the city. That process began with repentance, with self-examination, with the churches facing their own faithlessness, their own failures, their own pettiness and prayerlessness. And in the midst of those few churches and those few pastors, God began to do something. A few of those pastors decided in June 1995 to rent out the city soccer stadium to have a night of prayer and repentance, corporate repentance. And they roped off sections of the stadium expecting about 2,000 people. You know, they just roped it off to where it was open for the front, and they were blown away when 25,000 people showed up. And not only that, those 25,000 people sang and prayed all night long till 6 a.m. And it began this movement, and this was the first of many prayer vigils and marches that would be held in the city for the years to come. 48 hours after the event, the daily newspaper El Pace reported in a big headline, no homicides, because for the first time, as long as anyone in the city could remember, a weekend had passed with zero homicides. Not a single person was killed. And in a nation cursed with the highest homicide rate in the world, it was a newsworthy development. Corruption also began to take a major hit when the government found the will to resist the terror of the cartels. 900 cartel-linked police officers were removed in the next months after that. By August, three months after these prayer meetings began, seven of the major cartel leaders had been put in prison. This resistance of the government to the cartels and what began to happen was specifically due to the resistance of Christians who prayed in a warrior-like fashion against the evil in their city. And this did not go unnoticed by the powers that be. On December 13, 1995, Pastor Julio was riding to the, into the city for a pastor's fellowship meeting with his daughter in the car, and he was late, so he said, just drop me off in front of a Presbyterian church. He got out of the car and was instantly shot in the head twice by two gunmen who were waiting for him. His funeral was attended by 1,500 people who covenanted together at the funeral to maintain the movement that he had started. And 1995 became the beginning of a long-lasting change in Cali, which spread across 
Columbia through its many churches, unifying Christians to pray fervently for God, to God for his kingdom to come and for his will to be done. And interestingly, when you consult UN crime statistics in Colombia, you will see the beginning in 1990, but especially in 1995, there's a huge decline in homicide rate and crime. 20 years after the prayer vigil began, Julio's wife, Ruth, posted a video in 2013 to YouTube, and she said the Cali of today is so different from the Cali of 1995. She said it isn't where we want it to be yet. We've got further to go, but we've come so far, she said. For Colombian Christians in Cali, prayer mattered in their situation. God used prayer and the witness of his people to affect change in Cali and Colombian as a whole. Months after these prayer vigils began, an American went down to see, you know, report on what was going on. And pastors just were, their churches were overflowing because their prayer had overflowed into the mission of the church. And people were just coming to faith like crazy. And the American said to the pastor, what's your strategy? And he said, we have no strategy. We just put the nets into the water and pull up the fish. And as I say all that, I ask you, people of God, how does that story hit your own heart? Are you inspired? Are you skeptical? Are you faithful or are you faithless? I believe that prayer is the most intense area of the struggle of our faith. It is the principal battleground of spiritual warfare where we constantly experience the whisper of the accuser of our soul who says, you really believe that there is a divine power in heaven and what you say in your closet is going to change history? Your prayer life is so weak, God ain't going to do nothing through you. Remember that time you prayed a couple of months ago? Nothing's happened yet. We so often struggle to take Jesus at his own word, who talked about prayer so much, who taught his people to be bold and persistent and honestly quite adventurous in prayer, who taught us to pray all the time the radical prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus taught us to pray between the veil of earth and heaven and bring heaven down to earth. Tyler Staten, author of the recent book and helpful book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, he said, this is where Jesus loses us. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Prayer, he says, prayer as a way to meditate and let go? Definitely. Prayer as a centering exercise? Essential. Prayer as a channel to be reformed from the inside out, of course. Prayer that really works? The prayer that joins God to bring about redemption and healing in the world and push back darkness? Prayer that actually makes a marked difference in the visible, tangible world and the lives of real people I interact with and the real issues they face? The sort of prayer that brings heaven down to earth? Here is where opinions splinter in every direction, and this is where Jesus often loses us. It's that area of our lives we are forced to wrestle in faith. But it is that area precisely through which Jesus loves to work through his people in and through his church to heal the world. If we would but trust and ask and persevere as he trusts and asks and persevere. Here we are continuing on in the book of Acts. We've seen so many different narratives of the book about the church and its mission and its life together. But when you go back through Acts, as I did this week, you will find that one activity flows beneath all the activity of the book of Acts, and that is prayer. Every single narrative contains prayer. And like all prayer, it is multidimensional. There is regular, regular praying the hours on the sixth hour and the ninth hour. 
There is extraordinary situational prayer. There is repentant and salvific prayer. There is healing prayer over people's bodies. The book of Acts is about Jesus' continuing powerful mission in the world by his people and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's about what God is doing, but what God often does in what God is doing flows through his people and through their prayers because that's how God loves to work. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't be here proclaiming this word to you today if it hadn't been for the prayers of the church, if it hadn't been for the prayers of my mother. But God worked through those prayers, and here I stand before you to proclaim it. The hinge point and the key emphasis of our text today is just in one verse, verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. But the church prayed. I want to look at this text as it flows in three points today. First, there is trouble. Then there is travail. And lastly, there is transformation. There is trouble, there is travail, and there is transformation. First, the trouble. The church is in trouble again. Persecution is thick in the air again. James, the brother of John, son of Zebedee, one of the OG disciples, one of the twelve, is tragically and publicly beheaded by another Herod. This is another Herod, Herod of Agrippa I. I'm not going to go into detail on all the Herods. Just know it's a big and dysfunctional family. (laughs) It's Passover week again in Jerusalem, Luke tells us. Not for no reason. He's hearkening our minds to remember what happened the last Passover week when there was a different martyrdom and a different Herod. (laughs) And he's finding, Herod is, that this pressure on the Christian movement is scoring him political points, and he loves political points. And he wants to keep up the pressure on this young Christian movement, so he goes after their leader, He throws Peter in prison, locks him between soldiers, and he's planning for another public execution after Passover. Can you try to feel the anxiety and the fear that this little community must have been feeling together? They were again confronted with the fragility of their situation. It had to make them feel all manner of things, think all manner of things. Life in this world is troubled. It leads us to a thorough, a swirl of thoughts and a swirl of emotions that accompany our fragile positions in this life. And we ask questions like, what's going to happen to me? Will this person live? Will I be alone forever? When's the next mass shooting? Will I be able to pay off my debts? Will that family have enough food to eat? Will my family have enough food to eat? And these saints here in this room are asking, will our leader live? And the question, people of God, is not whether trouble will come upon your life, is what are you going to do with your trouble? What are you going to do with the swirling thoughts and emotions from the trouble? What did they do? They took it to the Lord in prayer. They took all of that swirling thoughts, all the anxiety, all of the fear and emotions, and they brought their thoughts into the place of prayer. Any faithful Christian prayer is going to take you on a chain. And that chain is from thoughts to prayer to action. Many people in our society are rightly skeptical of the phrase, thoughts and prayers be with you. And the reason why they're skeptical of the phrase is that the people saying it, they know, have no plans for redemptive action in the world. But faithful prayer always takes those thoughts and those prayers and the swirling things inside your hearts, brings them into the presence of God and prepares for a process of action. 
And that process may indeed be waiting. But waiting is active. Numbness is passive. And they are being brought into this process. And they're just praying over and over again. They've called this special prayer meeting as a church. And this isn't your regular noontime prayer meeting kind of prayer. This kind of prayer is what we might call travailing prayer. So we got from trouble to travail. To travail is an old King James word throughout the King James tradition, uh, especially prominent in the black church tradition. To travail is to engage in painful or laborious effort. It often describes in the King James Bible the experience of a woman who tra- in transition of birth, where she switches from regular labor into travail, <laughs> into, you know, you can't talk to her anymore. <laughs> it's a travail kind of moment. It, and what the church is doing is engaging in this long-suffering work of prayer, this ministry. And so here in verse 5, it says, But earnest prayer, earnest prayer, was made for Peter, to God by the church. And earnest, this Greek word here means to be persevering, to be eager, to be fervent, to be constant. Martin Luther said prayer is the sweat of the soul. And these saints are sweating. They are up late. They know what they want and they are asking God for it. The prayer meeting called by the church was their first response, not their last response in their moment of crisis. They took it to the Lord in prayer constantly and fervently. This community, of course, did not plop down out of thin air. Their prayers didn't come magically inspired. They were formed into this kind of prayer. They were formed as a Jesus movement, and they were attentive to Jesus' teaching on prayer, who had taught his people, this is what I want you to pray like. Let's say there's this old woman who has suffered injustice. She's an old widow, and she can't get justice. And so there's a judge in the city, and he doesn't want to give her any justice. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't respect people. But she knocks on his door over and over and over again and says, no justice, no peace. She says, give me justice. Jesus said, if that wicked judge listens to her because she just keeps banging on his door, how much more will God give justice to people who keep calling on him? It it reminds me a little bit of the dynamics I have with my five-year-old, Mr. Winton, Uh, I'll be sitting in the kitchen, you know, talking to Melissa. We're just trying to have a conversation after the workday. And all of a sudden, I just feel this tapping on my thigh. It's right here. And it's just accompanied by the words, Papa, 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 Papa. Winton will not be satisfied till I turn my attention towards him. I want to keep having the conversation I'm having with Melissa, but he is insistent. He keeps tapping on my thigh saying, Papa. And finally, I look down at him and say, what? What do you want? These folks are praying like that. They're saying, Father, 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 I need justice for Peter. Their theology of prayer was shaped by, yes, their Jewish heritage, but also by all of Jesus' teaching, who had taught before he left, before he ascended. He said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because if not, the helper will not come to you. And then he said later in John 16, and that day you will ask nothing of me. What did he mean? Jesus had walked around with these people throughout his earthly ministry, and they asked him to do thing after thing after thing. They said, Jesus, come over, heal, come over here and heal. Jesus, come over and do this. And Jesus said, there's a day coming when you're no longer going to ask things of me. You're going to be able to ask it directly to the Father as I ask it to the Father. 
until now you have asked nothing in my name, and then you will ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus, what did he mean by this to his community? He meant that once the Holy Spirit came, that they were going to have direct power and access to call on God and to call down the Lord's power as Jesus had done. So like the saints in Cali, Colombia, they committed themselves to the practice of prayer even before they could see the results. What were they praying? What were the saints praying for? For Peter to be spared, for the name of Jesus to go forward, for their witness as the church, for the oppressive violence of Herod and his arrogance and pride to be stopped. Maybe some of them were praying for God to smite King Herod or lead him to repentance. What are we supposed to pray in moments of trouble? We are supposed to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is praying backwards. What do I mean? Prayer is praying God's will back to him. What do I mean? We are to think in any troubled situation, what is the will of God? Is the will of God violence and oppression and homicides on my street? No, that's not the will of God. What is the kingdom of God like? The kingdom of God is a kingdom of peace and justice and flourishing and liberation and gentleness and righteousness. So I'm going to pray with boldness for the future to back up into my present. I'm going to be distributing the resources of heaven to this place on earth and asking heaven to come down here. I want my world to look like what it will look like eschatologically. The people of God pray backwards. We start with the word of God, which leads us to the will of God to then pray in line with the will of God. So the people are praying, God, I want you to free the prisoners. God, I want you to humble the evil, corrupt political powers. St. Isaac the Syrian said, the reading of scripture is manifestly the fountainhead which gives birth to prayer. Scripture guides us in the way we are supposed to be praying, especially in moments of tragedy and confusion. So the church travails in prayer. They're holding this all-night prayer vigil for this specific purpose, to cry out for Peter's relief. And in the midst of that travail, after that trouble, God brings transformation. So thirdly, transformation. And in this case, it's immediate transformation. Peter finds himself visited by an angel. In this miraculous scene, the angel has to punch Peter in the side to wake him up. (laughs) I don't know why the text wants to tell us that, but it does. He says, get up, get up, get up. And he guides him out of the prison. And and Peter, like you, isn't used to uh, angelic uh, people visiting him. Because ancient people are not dumb and gullible. They're normal people like you, and they don't expect when they're in prison for an angel to come and free them from their chains. And so it's not until he's sitting in the middle of the city street when he's like, oh, okay, <laughs> God did something. Now I'm sure that the Lord has worked in my life. So then there's this comedic scene where he goes to the house of Mary where they're having this prayer meeting and begins to quietly but audibly knock on the gate outside. Like, hey, hey, y'all, hey, y'all. And the servant girl named named Rona, she comes to the gate and she sees what's happening and she just leaves him there. (laughs) It's like, man, Luke is is writing a comedy for us. And she goes inside. And wouldn't you know it that the saints having an all-night prayer meeting who are crying out fervently for God, they they didn't expect God to work. (laughs) They say say to her, you are out of your mind. Because God doesn't do things like this, evidently. N.T. Wright says, I find this all strangely comforting, partly because Luke is allowing us to see that the early church for a moment is not a bunch of great heroes and heroines of the faith, 
but it's the same kind of muddled, half-believing, faith one minute and doubt the next sort of people that most Christians we know. And partly I find it comforting because it would be easy for skeptical thinkers to dismiss the story of Peter's reliefs from jail as a pious legend, except for the fact that nobody constructing a pious legend out of thin air would have made up this little ridiculous story of Rhoda and the praying but hopeless church. When they finally see him released, they are as amazed as anyone that God chose to work in this way. They, they marvel that God would choose to work for the, through their little prayers in this way. And all of a sudden, their, their trouble, which has led to their travail, which has led to transformation, has become a testimony. And that testimony is, but the church prayed. Peter was stuck in prison, condemned to death, but the church prayed. My marriage was disconnected and dry and seemed to me to be dead and lifeless, but the church prayed. I had an ailment or disease that would not go away, but the church prayed. I didn't think I could ever be free from my anxiety, my mental health challenges, my self-harm, my eating disorder, my addiction, but the church prayed. I didn't think I could ever be not phased by that strong temptation that's always made me fall, but the church prayed. I didn't think I could ever have a, vi a vibrant prayer life. But the church prayed. I didn't ever think I could shake loose from that entangling sin. But the church prayed. I didn't think I could experience the love of God for myself. But the church prayed. I didn't think my family friend or my family member would ever come to faith. But the church prayed. I didn't think our congregational demographics could ever reflect the demographics of our place. But the church prayed. I didn't think we could ever get to 30% native D.C. within our congregation. But the church prayed. I didn't think the pastors could ever start preaching good sermons. But the church prayed. Hallelujah. But the church prayed. Yeah, y'all... You're, sh you're shouting and praying now. You're shouting and praising now as you should. But let me go ahead and confront the elephant in the room. It's, it's been lurking around in your hearts throughout this sermon. Because in our hearts, what happens is, but the church prayed meets our painful experience. And but the church prayed becomes, but the church prayed, God. My friend was sick on her deathbed and she didn't make it. But the church prayed, God. My marriage has been dry and disconnected. I haven't, I haven't seen any life in my marriage in years. But the church prayed, God. Our church demographics have gone in the opposite direction of, of that, getting closer to our place. But the church prayed, God. My friend is not yet free of his addiction. He's still struggling, God. But the church prayed. I failed again. I got tempted and I fell down. But the church prayed, God. See, when, when this conviction meets our painful experience, it becomes a complaint. It becomes a lament. And we confront the reality that in prayer, we not only encounter the wondrous mystery, uh, the wondrous power of God, we confront the confusing mystery of God. Prayer is full of mystery and waiting and disappointment. And working through the mystery of God's yeses and God's noes is one of the great principal acts of faith we are called to wrestle with. To somehow claim the goodness of God, as we said in the first song, the Lord is good. The Lord is good. He's put clapping in my hands, stomp, <laughs> dancing in my feet. I know the Lord is good, but I'm having trouble right now. There are three kinds of answers I believe God gives to prayer. 
I don't think for the children of God there is such a thing as unanswered prayer. Because God always hears our prayers. Let me tell you the three types of answers. There's yes immediately. There is yes, but not yet. And there is no. First, there is yes immediately. That's our text here. The church is shocked as you are. I mean, something, a prayer is made and immediately an angel comes. Does anyone have a testimony of an immediate transformation in your life from a, from a prayer? The Lord loves to work in this way at times. I would not be here today. I am very confident if the Lord hadn't answered my mother's immediate yeses in the middle of the night when she prayed for me. I remember one night, I've never told this testimony from the pulpit, but I feel led to tell it now. Uh, I was, uh, one of the craziest nights of my life, my body was full of all kinds of chemicals. I was extremely foolish and stupid, and I found myself um, really overwhelmed by all the chemicals in my body. I was not doing well. I was sitting in a room, I remember, of a house. I didn't know how I got there. Uh, I was sitting in a room in an office chair, just twirling and twirling around. And I'll never forget, this young woman comes over to me, and she brings me a pitcher of ice water with a straw in it. And she said to me, I don't know who you are, but I know you need this. Drink. I've never seen her before. I've never seen her since. Was it an angel? Who knows? (laughs) But it wasn't until years later that my mother told me, that she would get woken up by the Holy Spirit at 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. during those first two years of my college experience. And she said, the Holy Spirit just said, pray for your son. (laughs) And I believe I'm here today as a result of an immediate answer to prayer that my mother prayed. So there are, yes, immediate prayers, uh, answers to prayer, and we should hope for them. We should pray for them. But then there are the yes, but not yet. And, And wrestling through the yes, but not yet's is one of our principal acts of faith. The Bible is more, way more honest about its unanswered prayers than you are. <laughs> Half of the book of Psalms are laments. They're the psalmist saying, Lord, you've been faithful before. Here's all your wondrous deeds. But here I am in this situation and you've done nothing. Where are you? I'm waiting for you. And it's at these vulnerable moments of waiting that we are most attacked by the voice of the accuser that says prayer isn't real, God isn't real, you are just praying to either make yourself feel better or because you're confused. This is Advent kind of prayer. This is living in the in-between. Scripture is full of yes but not yet prayers. The last verse of the Bible is Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Last time I checked, that prayer hadn't been answered yet. We come from a people of Advent prayer, living in the in-between. But also, God gives no's. Sometimes, Winton bangs on my thigh until I finally pay attention to me. And when I finally look at him, he asks for something ridiculous. He has already had three desserts, and he's not getting a fourth. See, sometimes the Father knows we don't need what we ask for. Sometimes God knows it isn't good for us. And this is painful, and this is hard, because we don't often know how to work through it. But God doesn't just work through his yeses. God works through his noes. What do I mean? I mean that in the mystery of God's will, many of our noes from God becomes other people's yeses. Maybe it was the Lord's will that that person not live through that illness, but 
proclaim the faith throughout her sickness and lead someone watching her to faith. God can work through the suffering of his saints. God can work through the many no's that come into our life to bring many yeses into other people's lives. God's got a plan for people 50 or 100 years from now that are directly related to the no's he gives you. Why, what do I mean? I mean his kingdom's upside down. It doesn't work in the ways that we expect. And when I think about receiving no's as a child of God, it takes me back to another child of God who received a no. It takes me back to the Son of God praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he said, Father, it's, if it's at all possible, please, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Not my will, but yours be done. Have you ever thought about the fact that if Jesus had had his prayer answered with a yes, that you couldn't have had your prayer answered with a yes? God's greatest no of all time was his no to his son, who prayed that he would be spared. But God gave his no to Jesus so that he could give his yes to you. And Jesus, because he trusted the goodness of God, added on that line to his prayer, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is praying in the midst of his trouble, in the midst of his travail. He's saying, here's what I would like to happen, but I know I can't see everything. I know I can't see the end of the road. I know you can. Not my will, but yours be done. Prayer is entering into that realm of the kingdom where time is relative where our burdens somehow become lighter in the presence of a God who's working out all things according to his purposes in our life. Our sense of time can be altered when what seemed urgent before becomes relative within the peace of of God. Prayer does not exempt us from suffering. It fortifies us for suffering. We as a people of God have to have a theology of the cross. We go through Holy Week every year and we say, oh, isn't it beautiful that God can bring about such beauty through suffering? But when that suffering comes into our paths, God's unjust, God's unfaithful. It's because we haven't integrated the cross into our experience. And we have let the expectations of our world, which loves self-gratification and pleasure, color what we expect out of life with God, instead of the faith-filled expectations of Scripture. And finally, in prayer, and I don't say this, that we become escapist in our spirituality, but at some ultimate level, In the place of prayer and in the presence of God, we realize that God's goodness is eternal for us in the midst of life and death. Oftentimes we say with just like Mary and Martha did, Lord, if you had been here, my friend wouldn't have died. But I got to remind you that once Jesus rose up Lazarus from the dead, he was still in a body of death and that one day Lazarus was going to die. All of us live in a body of death. All of us need an eternal hope. Paul says if, in Christ, if, if our hope in Christ is for this life only, then we are of most people to be pitied. So that is why in the place of prayer, we can buttress our souls with the eternal hope of the kingdom and therefore learn to pray as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. When they were about to be thrown into the fiery furnace, they said, just know, O king, that God, the God who we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace." And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, may it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew the goodness of God. They knew the eternal hope of God. 
That is what we're supposed to find in prayer. In the midst of the confusion of God's yeses and God's noes as we wait on the Lord. How do we apply this sermon? I have a few aspects of application. Pray the hours, pray together, pray immediately, and pray like warriors. First, pray the hours. It's tempting in texts like this to think that prayer is only just this situational and extraordinary occurrence in our lives. And so we, we wait till we're ready to pray. We'll wait till we have an overflow of the Spirit and we're ready to pray. But if you go back and look at Jesus and the disciples and throughout the book of Acts, these are Christians who pray the hours, 6 a.m., 9 a.m., 12 p.m., 3 p.m., 6 p.m. If you want to know how to start a prayer life, the best place to start is by praying at certain times and certain days. Somebody wrote the church father, Augustine, and said, how do I have a vibrant life of prayer? And Augustine said, start by praying to God in words at certain fixed hours and times so that you will realize over time as you practice it that you have more desire to practice it as you go. D.M. McIntyre said, pray till you pray. I love that quote. Practice prayer until the reality of prayer becomes your experience. Pray the hours. Secondly, pray together. The Christians in Cali, Colombia, and the Christians in Acts 12 found power in their prayers together, uniting to God and praying for certain things at certain times together. And this week has just led us all as a staff to have some self-examination about corporate prayer. And I think we've done a good job here at the church of resourcing you all for prayer. We have a whole prayer ministry. Uh, we make a prayer publication We've opened up the church for daily prayer many times throughout the last two years. But we felt the Lord leading us to make some structural changes to facilitate more corporate prayer. And so we want to start praying together every Wednesday. We're going to move prayer to noon and make it a prayer call. Whether you can come physically to the building or call into the phone call, we want to start opening up that space for you. So Wednesday noon prayer calls. We also have daily prayer at 1130 here at the church Monday Tuesday, Thursday, we decided we're going to start planning worship and prayer nights at the church. Uh, we're going to shoot for two within the coming years. We decided we're going to start integrating the, the act of testimony more into the worship service on a monthly basis because testimony fuels prayer. Why? Because testimony is a testimony to God's answered prayer or transformation in someone's life. And I just want to applaud one of our elders and shepherdesses, uh, Katie and Evan Willett, for their fourth Monday prayer every fourth Monday evening. They have been faithful for years and years at 8 p.m. So I want us all to crowd their house <laughs> during the next fourth Monday prayer, if y'all are having it. Just let us know. <laughs> they have been faithful to gather small groups and start praying. And I encourage you within your small groups in the church, collect each other's prayers, catalog prayers. Thirdly, pray immediately. I texted my mom this week because she's a prayer warrior, as I've already said in the sermon. And I said, Mom, here's my text this week. I need you to send me some thoughts. Because <laughs> when it comes to prayer, I'm not really interested in asking the scholars all about prayer. I'm, I'm interested in asking the church mothers about prayer. I'm interested in asking those who have been about this life of prayer for years and years. And she said, here's my thoughts. When, when someone asks me to pray for them, I try to do it right there on the spot with them. If they send me a text or an email, I try to send them immediate a prayer in response on text and email. 
She said, I found it so useful to write people prayers and send to them because they can go back and read it and meditate on it. She said, when, when I ask uh, someone to pray for me, she said, I try to report back to them about how God has worked in the situation so they can know that their prayers are being answered. All right, Babs. She said, for my own personal prayer life, I really like to journal my prayers. And it, my mom's always journaling. She said, it helps me to write it down and has the freeing effect of writing it and leaving it in his hands. I can go back and look at how he's met my needs. She says, I like speaking scriptures out loud as a prayer back to God. I didn't even tell her about my sermon. And she said, I pray conversationally to the Lord all throughout my day, especially when I'm driving and sometimes during the night if the Lord wakes me up. So pray immediately. Pray fervently. The New Testament says be constant in prayer. The New Testament says pray without ceasing. And finally, pray like warriors. Pray like Pastor Julio and the Cali Colombian Christians. And stop ruminating, just ruminating with anxiety over the problems we are facing as a church or as a city. Hot months are coming and we expect violence and we expect homicides. What do you do with those thoughts? Many of you in this room have different callings. You might work in city government. You might work in law enforcement. You can work on these issues in a different way. But all the people of God have the ministry of prayer. Karl Barth said, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. We are to pray like warriors, to, for God to push back homicidal spirits within our city, for God to end poverty in our city, for us to meditate on what it looks like for Jesus to rule and reign upon the earth and say, Lord, I want that rule and reign here now. I want you to do that, and I'm going to pray expectantly. Jesus said, if you have faith just like the size of a little mustard seed, you can tell that mountain to move. And we say, Jesus, you're being ridiculous. But Jesus said, no, take me at my word. Jesus said, have faith. What would it look like, people of God, for you to lean into faith instead of doubt within the coming months? And you ask the Lord expectantly. Lord, I believe that you can get us a building. <laughs> Lord, I believe that we can raise $5 million. I believe we can go into this building process without a mortgage. That's my prayer. Pray it with me. Be bold. Be adventurous in prayer. What if the Lord answered every single prayer that you had prayed over the last week? What would be true within our city in the last year? What would be true? Lean into the Lord and know that he's got his listening ear towards you and that he loves to work through your prayers. And trust that in heaven above, ascended before the throne, there is one who always lives to make intercession for us. There is one who prays fervently and travails on our behalf. There is one who has to deal with a prayer that hasn't become true yet. Because he said in that upper room, he said, Lord, uh, Father, may your church be one as you and, you and I are one. That's an incomplete prayer. It hasn't been answered yet. You have one who prays with you and for you up in heaven above. So let's pray in response to that. Let's be bold in prayer. But the church pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.